This is Space Time, Series 26, Episode 117, for broadcast on the 29th of September, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, NASA's Parker Solar Probe slammed by a powerful coronal mass ejection. NASA's Mars Curiosity rover undertakes its most difficult climb ever. And have alien mummies turned up in Mexico? All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA's Parker Solar Probe has just been hit by one of the most powerful coronal mass ejections ever recorded. Not only did it successfully fly through the event, but it came out the other side virtually unscathed. The spectacular achievement was not only an impressive feat of engineering, but also a massive boom for the scientific community. Coronal mass ejections are powerful explosions, blasting billions of tons of solar material, including protons, electrons, neutrons, alpha particles and magnetic field into space. They're triggered by sunspot activity generating solar flares, and they cause geomagnetic storms or space weather events that can have disastrous effects on Earth, including communications and navigation disruptions, power blackouts, the damage or destruction of spacecraft, and higher radiation doses for astronauts in space. Parker's successful journey through a coronal mass ejection has now helped scientists confirm a 20-year-old hypothesis about the interaction of coronal mass ejections with interplanetary dust. And the findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal will also have implications for space weather forecasts. A 2003 paper theorised that coronal mass ejections could interact with interplanetary dust in orbit around the Sun and even carry the dust outwards, like wind blowing sand here on Earth. And learning how these events can interact with interplanetary dust will help scientists predict how quickly a coronal mass ejection will travel from the Sun to the Earth, forecasting when the planet could see first impact. The study's lead author, Guillermo Stenborg from the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, says these interactions between coronal mass ejections and dust were theorised two decades ago, but were not observed until Parker's solar probe viewed a coronal mass ejection act like a vacuum cleaner, clearing the dust out of its path. This dust is made up of tiny particles from asteroids, comets, and especially from Martian dust storms, and it's present throughout the solar system. And we can even see it from Earth. A type of faint glow called the zodiacal light is sometimes visible just after sunset or shortly before sunrise. The Parker observations show that the coronal mass ejection displaced the dust all the way out to about 10 million kilometres from the Sun. That's about a sixth the distance between the Sun and Mercury. But interestingly, it was replenished almost immediately by more interplanetary dust floating through the solar system. In-situ observations by Parker were critical in this discovery because characterising dust dynamics in the wake of coronal mass ejections is challenging at a distance. According to Stenborg and colleagues, Parker's observations could also provide insights into related phenomena lower down in the corona, such as coronal dimming caused by low-density areas of the corona that often appear after coronal mass ejections erupt. Scientists observed the interaction between the coronal mass ejection and interplanetary dust as decreased brightness in images taken by Parker's Whisper Wide Field Imager camera. 
This happens because interplanetary dust reflects light, amplifying brightness when the dust is present. To locate this occurrence of decreased brightness, the team had to compute the average background brightness of WISPA's images across several similar orbits, sifting out normal brightness variations that occur due to solar streamers and other changes in the solar corona. Parker had orbited the Sun four times at the same distance, allowing the authors to compare data from one pass to the next. By removing brightness variations due to coronal shifts and other phenomena, they were able to isolate the variations caused by dust depletion. Because scientists have only observed this effect in connection with this one event, Stenberg and colleagues theorized that dust depletion may only occur with the most powerful coronal mass ejections. Nevertheless, studying the physics behind these interactions will have implications for space weather predictions. Parker recently completed its sixth Venus flyby, using the planet's gravity to slingshot itself even closer to the Sun, a trajectory it will follow for the next five close approaches. And all this is occurring as the Sun itself is approaching solar maxima, the most active period in its 11-year solar cycle, where sunspots and solar activity reach their most abundant. As the sun's activity increases, scientists hope to have an opportunity to see more of these phenomena and explore how they affect the Earth's environment and interplanetary medium. This is Space Time. Still to come, NASA's Mars Curiosity rover undertakes its most difficult climb on the red planet yet and have alien mummies turned up in Mexico. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Well, it's taken three attempts, but NASA's Mars Curiosity rover has finally arrived at Cadiz Vallis Ridge, a mound of mud and boulders piled up by a massive ancient flood. The site's long been a target for mission managers, but it turned out to be the most difficult climb the car-sized six-wheeled rover has ever undertaken. Three billion years ago, amid one of the last wet periods on Mars, powerful debris flows carried rocks, dirt and regolith down the side of Mount Sharp, Gal Crater's five-kilometre-high central peak. This debris spread out into a fan that was later eroded by Martian winds into a towering ridge, preserving an intriguing record of the red planet's watery past. Now, after three attempts, NASA's Mars Curiosity rover has finally reached the ridge. Previous forays were stymied by knife-edged gatorback rocks and slopes which were simply too steep to climb. But now, following its arrival on the ridge, scientists can finally study this long-sought-after geology. Curiosity Project scientist Ashwin Vasaveda from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, says that after three years, scientists finally found a spot where Mars allowed Curiosity to safely access the steep ridge. The rover's been ascending the lower part of Mount Sharp since 2014, discovering evidence of ancient lakes and streams along the way. Mount Sharp is quite literally a layer cake of geology. Different layers of the mountain represent different eras in Martian history. As curiosity ascends, scientists learn more about how the landscape changed over time. Gadiz Valley's ridge is among the last features on the mountain to form, making it one of the youngest geological time capsules curiosity will see. 
the rovers spent a total of 11 days at the ridge, busily snapping images and studying the composition of dark rocks that clearly originated elsewhere on the mountain. The debris flows which helped form Geddes Valley's ridge carried these rocks and others lower on the ridgeline, some as large as cars, down from layers higher up Mount Sharp. Therefore, these rocks are providing a rare insight into material from the upper mountain that Curiosity can examine. The rover's arrival at the ridge has also provided scientists with the first close-up views of eroded remnants of a geologic feature known as the debris flow fan, where debris flowing down the slope spreads out into a fan shape. Debris flow fans are common on both Mars and Earth, but scientists are still learning how they form. Huge rocks were ripped out of the mountain high above, they tumbled downhill and then spread out into a fan below. Last month, the rover's mass cam captured 136 images of Geddes Valley's ridge, creating a spectacular 360-degree mosaic view of the surrounding area. The panorama shows the path Curiosity took up the mountainside, including through the Markaban Valley, where evidence of an ancient lake was discovered. While the scientists are still poring over the imagery and data from the Geddes Valley's ridge, Curiosity has already turned its attention to the next challenge, finding a path to the channel above the ridge so that scientists can learn more about how and where water once flowed down Mount Sharp. This report from NASA TV. The Curiosity rover has discovered lots of evidence of ancient lakes on Mars, but what we saw in this panorama surprised us. Curiosity is currently exploring Mount Sharp. The whole mountain is three miles tall, but we're down in the foothills. In 2022, the rover started exploring a unique feature on Mars called the marker band. It's a dark, thin layer of rock that stands out from the layers above and below it. We first saw it in orbiter images years before we launched. What created this winding layer of hard rock is a mystery, but Curiosity can help us understand what formed the marker band. We first discovered that the rocks within the marker band are really hard. Curiosity has faced some challenges drilling into them, but we might find a softer spot on the road ahead. Nearby, we found an exciting scientific clue rippled textures created billions of years ago by waves in a shallow lake. We've climbed through many lake deposits during our mission, but have never seen wave ripples this clearly. This was especially surprising since the area we're in probably formed at a time when Mars was becoming more dry. Just above the rippled layer is another intriguing clue. These rocks have a very repetitive pattern in their spacing and thickness. We see lots of layers on Mars, but they're rarely this regular. We're not sure what caused this rhythmic pattern. Weather or climate cycles, like dust storms happening at periodic intervals, are possible explanations. In the distance, debris in a valley called Geddes Vallis. This was washed down by wet landslides very late in Mount Sharp's history. This landslide debris is probably the most recent evidence of water that we'll ever see. It will allow us to study layers higher up on Mount Sharp that we can't reach since they're so far up the mountain. Curiosity has driven through some amazing scenery and we've learned so much about Mars's ancient climate. But even after 10 years, there's so much more to explore. This is space time. Still to come, have alien mummies turned up in Mexico? 
And later in the science report, a new study shows that a vegan diet not only helps you lose weight, but it can also save you money. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Mexican journalist and longtime UFO enthusiast Jamie Mousen has shown Mexican lawmakers what he claims are a pair of tiny thousand-year-old mummified bodies that he says are the remains of two non-human extraterrestrial life forms. The meter-tall alleged aliens were presented to the Mexican Congress in two white and cream-lined caskets. The pair, which have been named Clara and Mauricio, feature elongated heads looking remarkably like something out of E.T., Each has a long, thin torso, two legs and two arms, just like humans, but with three-fingered hands. Oh, and Clara, well, apparently she's pregnant and carrying eggs. Of course, scientists are pouring cold water on the claims. Some scientists fear these may be mummies looted from gravesites in Peru. Others say they're simply a crude fabrication, composing a mixture of human and animal bones from a range of different species and ages. 70-year-old Mousen says he's commissioned DNA and carbon testing on the beings, as he calls them, which I guess means, dare I say, an alien autopsy. Astronomy head David Spurgle, former head of Princeton University's astrophysics department and the chair of NASA's report on unidentified anomalous phenomena, says such alleged samples need to be made available for testing to the world's scientific community. Now, it's worth noting at this stage that Mousen is no stranger to controversy. He angered scientists and Peruvian officials back in 2017 when he made similar claims about other mummified remains uncovered near the Nazca Lines, which experts later found were doctored human mummies. Now, while we're on the subject, NASA's independent study team, which we mentioned earlier, has released its highly anticipated report on UFOs, finding no evidence that reported unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAP, observations are extraterrestrial. The findings follow a congressional hearing back in July, during which former Pentagon Intelligence Officer David Grouch testified that the American government had been hiding evidence of crashed UAPs and alien biological specimens. The claims were later denied by Sean Kirkpatrick, the head of the Pentagon's office charged with investigating UAPs. NASA's administrator Bill Nelson says the agency can now focus on scientific programs to search for traces of life on Mars and the imprints of biology in the atmospheres of exoplanets, thereby shifting the conversation from sensationalism to scientific facts. Of the more than 800 unclassified sightings collected by the Department of Defense's All-Domain Anomalous Resolution Office and reported at the NASA panel's first public meeting back in May, only a small handful could not immediately be identified as known human-made or natural phenomena. Many of the sightings were attributed to weather balloons and airborne clutter. Historically, most UFOs are astronomical objects, such as meteors, fireballs and the planet Venus. Some sightings represent surveillance operations. That's why the U.S. military considers those the national security issue. Others which remain classified are likely secret U.S. military black ops projects. NASA's report does offer recommendations on how to move these investigations forward. Most UAP data considered by the team actually comes from U.S. military aircraft. 
Yet the analysis of this data was hampered by poor sensor calibration, the lack of multiple measurements, the lack of sensor metadata, and a lack of baseline data. The ideal set of measurements would include both optical and infrared imaging, as well as radar data. But the problem is, few reports actually provided all three. The authors did stress the importance of reducing the stigma associated with UFO sightings. These caused both military and commercial pilots to feel they can't freely report sightings. After all, would you report seeing a flying saucer if you thought it would affect your job? The NASA study team suggested gathering sightings by commercial pilots using the Federal Aviation Administration and combining these with the classified sightings provided to the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, the military department charged with leading the analysis effort. Problem is, at the moment, there is no anonymous reporting mechanism for commercial pilots. I guess astronomer Carl Sagan said it best, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says that evidence does not yet exist. It started with the NASA having really, you know, recent announcements and this follows on from the Pentagon announcement. It wants information from people as to what they're aware of, what they've heard. It set up a body of eminent persons to examine it. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's an interesting situation now, sort of following on the Pentagon, which released sort of videos which had been around a fair while, admitting that it had a, a group that was investigating UFOs or UAPs, as they're referred to these days, unidentified anomalous phenomena, and NASA has shown that it's doing the same thing. It's not surprising that they are looking at things that might be classified as uh, UAPs, but does that mean they are alien, extraterrestrial, intelligence, technology, etc.? And the answer is no. Basically, you look at the first word, which is unidentified. Whatever they might be, we, they, NASA admits that between 2 and 5% of its sightings that it collated, it's about 800 reports, but they said only a small fraction, 2 to 5% were truly unexplained. And that's the issue, unexplained. And people then say, oh, it's unexplained, it must be a flying saucer. And you know, you go back and say, it's unexplained, and that's as much as we know. The interesting thing with a lot of the Pentagon films that came out, and obviously the famous ones of the videos from, yeah, yeah, the videos from jet pilots and jet aircraft, etc., have been explained. And the interesting, they were explained very, very quickly. I'm surprised how many balloons there are floating around there. (laughs) Yes, well, I'm sure there are. We actually did a few tricks in the early days of the skeptics with balloons, and people believing in flying saucers, it's, uh, that's a lot of fun. You put up a balloon, you shine a torch on it, and it looks like there's a, a, a craft in the sky. But yeah, I mean, the things that the Pentagon is pointing out, the big ones, these videos, were quickly explained. If only the Pentagon had actually talked to people who knew what they were talking about, um, we wouldn't have wasted all this time. But NASA is sort of coming out and saying, yeah, we, we've been doing this stuff too. So I think it's fair enough that they do it. I've got no problems if they find something fantastic. But at the moment, all they've found is most of it is, is explicable, and just a very, very small fraction is not. And all that means is we've got a very small fraction of stuff that's not explainable, period. But then you get people with first-hand accounts of experience with UFOs and people of alien origin, extraterrestrial folk, such as David Grush, who talks about this. Yeah, David Grush popped up fairly recently. Bob Lazar um, was another one, of course, from back in the 1970s. He was doing this. Yeah, thing. a lot of these people claim credentials that often don't exist, or they've exaggerated them, etc. But David Grush apparently does have credentials within the Pentagon. He worked for a group which became known as the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, AARO for short. So it is anomalies they're looking at, so it's uncertain things. And that's sort of pretty much what the Pentagon was doing. You know, this group has had various names, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force was an early name it was called. But they're looking at it more broadly as anomalies. And he came out and said that there is information within the Pentagon and wherever of crashed 
aircraft and alien bodies and that this has been rumoured for a long time but here's someone with decent credentials, provable credentials, speaking about it and giving information to Congress. He was interviewed by an Australian journalist, Ross Coulthard, who has been pushing yeah, UFOs Ross's for... Ross's history, yeah, Ross's history. Yeah, he's yeah, been yeah. pushing it for a long time. He's actually been pushing the same things over and over again for a long time, so he's got something new here, except it's not, because actually the reality is that Grush has never seen, he admits, he's never seen this crash flying saucer material, metal, whatever it is, and he's never seen any alien bodies. He's just reporting things he has been told. So we're no closer to any sort of resolution in this issue. It's just the same old rumours that have been around for decades. The only difference is that he's got someone with actual verifiable credentials. It doesn't mean he's right. It doesn't mean what he's been told is right, but he's got a lot of publicity around from people who say, look, he knows what he's talking about. It must be true. No, it doesn't work out that way. And certainly he's not saying anything that he's got experience of. He's just passing on a rumour. I'm told that. And that's the problem with the UFO community. They hop onto someone who's the latest authority and they have their moment of fame in the sun, their 15 minutes, but then they'll just disappear again, basically because there is nothing there that you can actually look at, haha, from a UFO perspective. There's nothing there you can grab onto. There's no evidence supplied. It's just him saying something as if that's something new. It's not. You've had people saying things for, for years and years and years, but I mean, so he's just another person in a long line of uh, authorities. What we've found is that a lot of these UFO allegations started to spring up in the 1950s. We know it started in the 1940s, but in the 1950s it became very popular and most of them as it turns out were attributed to tests of U2 spy planes because nothing could fly that high and uh, look that weird. I, I wouldn't say most of them, I'd, I'd say a lot of them, but yeah most of them are just sort of natural phenomena really, not even a, a technology thing. You see most of the things you're seeing today that are sort of classed as UAPs are the same things that people have been seeing for years. Birds, balloons, Venus, aerial patterns and things, yeah this, the yeah. evidence is very very poor and a lot of evidence doesn't make it any less poor. In fact a lot of evidence which is poor evidence is actually makes it worse because you should by now have had very clear evidence if everyone carries a camera around with them yeah. in their pocket but um, so you know the fact that there is still no evidence of these things I remember the uh, the image I was shown of uh, purportedly a UFO and it was just these two orange circles in the sky and to me they were clearly the uh, exhausts of an FA-18 or an F-111 something with yeah. you know something like that and we were watching this thing accelerate away from us but uh, no they're UFOs they're uh, unidentified flying objects well I guess yeah. they are but they're actually not unidentified I'm, I'm well you can sure. identify them eventually yeah I mean yeah. we had we had um, uh, someone reported to us a while ago a long time ago he said they saw this UFO which had a green light on one side and a red light on the other so it's got earthly <laughs> navigation lights okay. <laughs> so that's convenient because it's the same colours as earthbound well not earthbound but yeah earthly aviation craft so how, how nice of that to follow our rules all of the evidence before for UFOs is pretty poor and uh, if we had definitive evidence we would not be doubting it anymore but we don't and we have a lot of misunderstanding misidentification that sort of stuff but there's still a percentage of stuff that we don't know we can't figure out you can't explain it but that doesn't mean it's an alien thing it just means you can't explain it and that's what you've got to keep telling people over and over again and it's very frustrating still after well that's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics this is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Researchers say switching from a meaty to a vegan diet should not only help you lose weight, but also save you money. 
The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, looked at food costs for 223 participants in a previous study which had randomly assigned each participant either a vegan diet or told them to stick to their usual choices. Average food costs for the vegan group dropped by 16%, while there was obviously no change in costs among those who continued with their previous non-vegan diets. The findings back up previous research, which showed that eating more plant-based foods and cutting meat and dairy saved people between 25 and 29% on their weekly shopping budget. People who come into emergency departments and hospital with alcohol-related diseases or conditions are more likely to make return visits and more likely to die in the following 20 years, which for many means dying in their 40s or 50s. The findings presented to the European Emergency Medicine Congress followed 194 patients who had alcohol-related diagnoses when they arrived at the emergency department of the Canberra Hospital in 2002. The authors then compared them to 194 other patients with non-alcohol-related diagnoses. They found patients with alcohol-related diagnoses made 44% more visits to the emergency room over the next decade and had a 130% higher death rate over the following 20 years compared to the control group. A new study suggests that you're probably happiest when you're a little kid. The findings reported in the journal Psychological Bulletin are based on 443 samples from longitudinal studies involving 460,902 participants. The authors focused on changes in three central components of subjective well-being, life satisfaction, positive emotional states and negative emotional states, possibly due to changes in the body and to social life that takes place during puberty. It then increased slightly until the age of 70. It then decreased once again until the age of 96. That's probably related to the fact that physical performances decrease, health often deteriorates, and social contacts diminish, not least because peers pass away. The positive emotional states showed a general decline from ages 9 through to 94, while negative emotional states fluctuated slightly between ages 9 to 22 and then declined until the age of 60 when they increased once again. This is Space Time. And that's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider and from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. 
That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 